Welcome. It is Friday, September 10th, 2021. You're listening to the Caravan Podcast, a venture of the Herbert and James White Working Group on the Middle East and the Islamic World at the Hoover Institution. The Working Group publishes regular commentary on the Middle East and questions for U.S. foreign policy. You can read our work at www.hoover.org caravan. In addition, we explore various topics about the Middle East here on our podcast, the Caravan Podcast. New podcasts appear about twice a month. Please subscribe by going to hoover.org, clicking on publications, and go to podcasts. I'm Russell Berman, director of the Working Group, and today I will be speaking with retired Colonel Joel Rayburn. Joel served as Deputy Assistant Secretary for Levant Affairs and Special Envoy for Syria in the U.S. State Department. That, however, hardly does justice to his extensive service, which includes tours of duty in Iraq and Afghanistan. He's a West Point graduate, and he later returned to West Point as a teacher of history. He's the author of the Hoover Press volume, Iraq After America, Strongmen, Sectarians, Resistance, and he's the co-author of the U.S. Army War College Press History of the Iraq War. But today our topic is Syria that Joel knows very well. Dara is a city in the very south of Syria. Its history stretches back to antiquity. Today we're concerned with more recent events. The arrest of some 15 youths for drawing anti-regime graffiti in 2011 prompted extensive demonstrations that one Dara the designation as Cradle of the Revolution, the Syrian uprising, which is now 10 years old. Dara paid a heavy price for its activism, facing repeated devastating attacks by the Syrian army. Russia appeared to broker agreements between the rebels and the regime in 2018 and again in 2020, but tensions never subsided, and the regime has never given up on its goal of crushing the rebellion. Joel, on September 4th, you tweeted, I'm quoting your tweet, too much international silence on the situation in Dara, Syria, where there are many reports the Assad regime aims to forcibly displace thousands of people who were under the protection of the Russians, so-called reconciliation agreements. Forcible displacement is a war crime. End of your tweet. Joel, good morning. Thanks for speaking with us. Can you help us understand the situation in Dara now, and can you place the situation against the backdrop of events over the past year or so, please? Sure, I'll do my best, and it's a real pleasure uh, to be here with you, Russell. I uh, really appreciate the work that, that you and the working group do um, and have done for many years now. Uh, situation in Dara, to you, uh, you have to trace it back. Uh, the current uh, crisis in Dara, you have to trace back to the summer of 2018, summer and fall of 2018. Um, that was the time when uh, the Syrian regime, along with Iranian regime forces and Lebanese Hezbollah, um, were pressing on uh, rebel-held territory that was in the Dara vicinity. Um, their objective was to try to snuff out uh, what was called the Southern Front of the Syrian military opposition at that time. It was well over 20,000 men under arms in the Southern Front. Uh, and the Syrian regime and the Iranians as well, and the Russians had an interest in trying to reestablish Syrian regime control and Hezbollah control of that territory uh, from the Syrian regime's perspective to try to 
retake control of the Syria-Jordan border crossing and be able to open up trade with Jordan that could produce revenues and hard currency for the Syrian regime. For the Iranian regime, uh, they wanted to be able to press onto the uh, closer uh, to the uh, uh, Israel border area so that they could uh, deploy a Hezbollah army, essentially, a Hezbollah militia and weapons in southern Syria that could be used against Israel as part of the, the broader um, military confrontation that the Iranian regime was trying to precipitate with, with Israel. So the Southern Front fighters were under pressure at that time. And uh, so as not to have to, uh, as not to have to, to uh, fight a costly battle, uh, the Russian military intervened to try to broker an agreement where the Southern Front uh, uh, military groups would give up their heavy weapons, but then they would be unmolested by the Syrian regime. Syrian regime would come in and take over the border zones again. They would establish checkpoints around some of the major towns and villages, but then they would leave those villages and towns to, um, to, to look after themselves as they had been doing since 2011. And also uh, the next part of the agreement was that um, uh, commercial traffic would be allowed to flow so that food and, and fuel and medicine and so on uh, could flow and international aid could flow through the UN and, and so on, World Food Program type of aid. And that part never happened. Um, the Russians, in other words, uh, were meant to be a restraint on the Syrian regime from going in and, uh, and um executing reprisals, cracking down, arresting people, and, and uh, throwing their weight around and so on. Um, and instead, over the, the following uh, half year, Syrian regime uh, began using its checkpoints to abduct people, arrest people. There were uh, several thousand uh, of uh, several thousand fighters and other figures from southern Syria that were arrested, even though they had done their end of, of, the, of the Russian deal. The Russian deal was brokered by a, a Russian general officer named Zorin, uh, who, uh, who had set up these arrangements with, with local fighters and uh, as a broker and had pledged uh, that the Russian military would be a buffer in between the regime and the locals. And as that didn't happen, uh, the, the locals in Southern Syria got disenchanted uh, with the arrangements they'd made. And little by little, uh, insurgency started to emerge in, in Dara and uh, other parts of southern Syria again. Um, it got also to the point where I think probably the Syrian regime's objective was just to uh, take over those areas bite by bite at their leisure over time. For them, the reconciliation agreement was just a way to neutralize the southern front for a while and then have a creeping takeover over time. They did, this, they did this in other places too, such as in the areas right around the uh, suburbs of, of Damascus. Uh, and so little by little, they began uh, encroaching more on the, on the areas that were supposed to be uh, left to their own devices. And that caused clashes, uh, as well as the discontent with the arrests and the fact that the regime was cutting off supplies. They were, they were 
through, through their ring of checkpoints, they weren't allowing uh, food and medicine and fuel to come through. So there was, there was a slow siege uh, of those areas. And it really tightened about two months ago, two and a half months ago, uh, which led to the current crisis. Um, the regime, I think, was, uh, was ready to try to finish off that pocket by force. Uh, they, they brought in uh, heavy weapons, rockets, and, uh, and other artillery and were using it against not just military targets, but civilian areas to, uh, to try to bring uh, the area called Dara al-Bella to heal, which is, it had a population of about 50,000 people. And then they began to organize convoys of, of buses um, with the same threat as they, uh, with threat of doing the same thing that they've done in the other pockets of uh, opposition resistance, which is to force the people to displace out of their homes and in some other part of Syria. There was negotiations went back and forth. It looks like now um, there's been something of a worse deal that's been revalidated where the Syrian regime has moved a, a little further into, uh, into the areas that they were putting pressure on. The locals are going to have to turn over uh, more weapons. Uh, they're going to have to uh, give up more information about who's in there in the population, register with the Syrian uh, uh, intelligence services, for example. And uh, the people in that, the young men in that area are supposed to uh, essentially register for conscription, uh, which will happen at some point, six months, 12 months down the road. That's because the other factor that's underlying all this is that after the reconciliation agreements in 2018, uh, the local uh, Southern Front remnants have little by little been forced to send some of their own fighters into Assad's army to be deployed into or, or in militias under Assad's military command it, that would be deployed into other areas, especially we saw it last year, 2020, uh, in Idlib, uh, 2019 and 2020, when the, when the big Syrian regime offensive began against Idlib in late 2019 and early 2020, uh, there was a significant number of thousands of the troops that the Syrian regime was using against the Northern Front in Idlib were actually reconciled Southern Front opposition fighters. And so it, it illustrates uh, that the Assad regime's military manpower supply, um, the cupboard is pretty bare there. And, and the, the, regime re the regime really needs this pool of manpower, this labor pool, in Dara and other places like that, to be to use it against the other restive places, because there just aren't enough uh, military-aged males amongst the regime loyalist communities to supply the manpower that the regime needs anymore. And there was a great deal of uh, resentment at that conscription, at that deployment of of uh, Southern Front fighters, not just to Idlib. They were also deployed out to. Uh, um, the Derazor area out, they were, they were, they were flung at kind of uh, ISIS remnants out in the Euphrates uh, Valley area. Uh, and that, that caused uh, th that, that was one of the last straws with the, with the folks in, in Dara. So they eventually got to the desperate enough situation that they, uh, they, they, uh, they tried to 
uh, take matters into their own hands and sparked the re rebellion in the South again. That was something that neither the Assad regime nor the Iranian regime in Hezbollah could afford uh, because of the need, the, the Syrian regime's need to try to protect the newly opened route between Damascus and Jordan. Uh, and also Hezbollah and the Iranian regime uh, didn't want to have to fight a war uh, against in, in the border zones, uh, down in the Jordan-Syria border zones or near the Golan, uh, where they were, they really hope over time to be able to establish a new military threat against Israel. That's the, uh, that's the, the broad situation. But it, it, it did get to the point a few days ago um, until, the, until the Russians were able uh, to broker a new uh, weaker agreement uh, that may last for the time being. It, it really, it, 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 the Syrian regime was threatening to do what it's done before, which is displace a large number of people to some other part of Syria. Let's talk about this question of population displacement that you mentioned in your tweet. Should we think about the Syrian regime's agenda primarily in terms of establishing control and carrying out reprisals, or is it also trying to push an unwanted population to leave an area in order to undertake what's sometimes called demographic re-engineering? Yeah, I, there, there are... Uh... Definite uh, undertones of demographic re-engineering uh, that have been going on for quite a while. Um, some of, I mean, the, the the areas we're talking about that are that are most restive. These are Sunni Arab um, populated areas, for the most part. Um, I mean, Syria is a country where the population, at least pre-war population, was approaching seventy percent uh, Sunni Arabs, and and for that, so. The, the regime, uh, uh, I think, looks at the refugee population and the IDP population as one that is not really wanted in what they call useful Syria or vital Syria anyway. Useful Syria, I, and this is their language, the regime's language. Useful Syria, they consider the parts of Syria that, that run from Aleppo down to Damascus, those are the areas that were that are industrialized. They're urban. They're more developed, as opposed to uh, the, the the vaster desert areas, the Jazeera, um, and the uh, the rural areas out to the to the east, or a place like Idlib in the in the far north, or even Dara in the in the far south. So I think for for useful Syria to be emptied of a good portion of its Sunnis, its Sunni Arabs. This is something that the regime um, uh, is not at all unhappy about. And, and they're not unhappy either uh, if it turns into a permanent arrangement. If those people, for example, if the, the millions of refugees that are in Turkey and Lebanon and Jordan in particular, the vast majority of whom are Sunni Arabs, if they are just gone for good, then that would create uh, what Bashar al-Assad referred to as a healthier society. A, a, a more a more balanced society, uh, without uh, with where the minorities, the Alawites, the Christians, Druze, and, and and so on, are more in balance with with Sunni Arabs. That's a um, pretty grim picture. Um, 
What are the prospects in your mind for the anti-regime forces in Dara or elsewhere in Syria? Um, is, a, um, is a complete Assad victory inevitable? No, and in fact, a complete Assad victory is impossible. Um, the situation in Dara, I, I think, uh, demonstrates that. It's, so I, I would flip the, qu the question on its head, mm -hmm. which is the, the, the dynamics are so against um, an Assad reconsolidation of power or reconquest, a reconquista, that uh, it's just hard to see it ever happening. Syria has changed beyond recognition from the Syria that Assad inherited from his father, literally inherited from his father. And it's that, that, that pre-war, that pre-revolutionary um, modus vivendi is just, it's gone forever. He's never going to be able to pacify, control, govern uh, these areas again. Even if he's got a military occupation of some of these areas, they're never going to be stitched back together under his rule. I don't know if they'll be stitched back together if it's under somebody else's rule. I'm not saying that, but I am, I'm, after having looked at this conflict for a number of years, I'm, I'm very confident that it's never going, he's never going to be able to put the situation back in the box. He's never going to be able to restore um, the Syria that he was ruling before 2011. It's just not going to happen. He also, he doesn't have enough. I used to tell people on my team, there's, there's not enough cream cheese to cover the bagel anymore for the, for the regime. He, he has his, the, the apparatus that he uses for control of that society is spread too thin. And if he were to try to absorb some of these vast territories that are still beyond the regime's control, and there are vast territories still beyond the regime's control, doesn't have the means of control. And he, he, can't, he can't spread the cream cheese any further over, over the, those parts of the bagel. If you look at, although the, the pockets that are outside of regime control in Northwestern Syria, Idlib, around Aleppo, um, and uh, Jarablus and so on. On the map of Syria, they've been shrinking little by little, but in relative terms, they're pretty big. That's more territory than the territory of the country of Lebanon, for example. And I think, and he's gone about as far as he's going to be able to go. I don't think the Turks are going to let him go any further into those territories. And then there's the vast territory east of the Euphrates that the regime doesn't control. They're, in some places, they're kind of just guests there. And I, it's, it's hard for me to see uh, how he would, if, if he somehow were able to militarily seize some of those population centers, how he would control them. I just don't think it's in the cards. So this is a war that's just, it, it's, it's going to go on and on and on uh, unless there's a settlement to it, a political settlement to it. It, 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 it may, it may wa it wax and wane in intensity. It, mm -hmm. it may be, it, you know, it may recede into lower, a lower level of intensity in places, which is what Dara did, you know, for two and a half years, Dara, there wasn't, there wasn't really a conflict there. There was a bit of a shadow conflict, um, but it didn't break out again into major confrontation until a couple of months ago, but that'll keep, 
happening on and on and on. He, he doesn't have any way uh, to put it to bed. Joel, talk a little bit about the uh, the Russian role. You mentioned how Russia played the uh, lead in um, engineering the um, the reconciliation um, uh, model, but then the Syrians, the Syrian regime, didn't live up to it. Is there space between Russia and Syria? Are there differences in their agenda? There are, but none that would n- none that uh, translate into a strategic change or a change in. Russian policy, a big change in Russian policy. I mean, when the Russians do things like negotiate those local agreements, they're really at a at a political level. They're doing it all in bad faith. Um, there are some uh, there. There may be some pragmatic Russian uh, commanders on the ground who just kind of want to put things under wraps. They just want to calm things down from time to time. Uh, and so they encourage those kind of local arrangements. But by the time you get up to the Moscow level, they have no interest in that at all. The, the, the Russian uh, objective is still to, uh, to help stamp out all of the opposition to Assad, where really what they would like to do, I think, is to, is to just get Assad to, to do what they would think is necessary to absorb, to just to to bring the opposition on board piece by piece, and uh, uh, but he doesn't do that. So that I think there is some frustration that Assad doesn't um, doesn't behave uh, in a way that the the Russians would consider more intelligent. Uh, but th- there's not; they're very deeply invested in preserving the personal rule of Assad. And what about the Iranian agenda? The Iranians, uh, the, the Iranians are after one major thing, and then they have some some corollary things. The major thing that the Iranians are after is to establish power projection platforms that they can use to create a new threat against Israel and other neighbors of Syria. They want to be able to reach through Iraq and Syria to the Mediterranean um, and have strategic depth there. And they want to they want to be knocking on Israel's door from but from a different side of the house. They have the Lebanon side of the house. They have that door. They want another one in Syria that they can use. Open up. They want to have the ability to open a second front against Israel if and when the war between uh, Iran and Israel comes. And and so in addition to the Hezbollah and Lebanon front, they would like to have an IRGC and Hezbollah front in Syria. They also would like to have a front that they can use against Israel from Iraq, um, which is why they invest in the Hashid Shabi, the the popular mobilization forces, um, being able to develop missile capabilities from Southern Iraq that they can use against the same ones they used against Saudi Arabia, uh, the missiles and the armed drones that, that the Iranians dispatched from Southern Iraq against Saudi Arabia they want to be able to use those against Israel as well, so that when the cataclysm comes, then they can have, they can enjoy three fronts or maybe in four fronts. Maybe they can do something from all the way down in Yemen um, at that stage, so they can have four fronts against Israel and swamp Israel. That's that's their objective. But they certainly, um, they certainly are trying very hard to to establish the capability to have that second front against Israel from Syria. And that's why the Israelis are bombing Iranian military sites and Hezbollah military sites on a regular basis inside uh, 
inside Syria. Mm. Okay. So there, there are, I, I didn't mention the corollary things. The Iranians also want to have that whole project be uh, self-sustaining. They they want to they want to be able they, they want to control Syrian revenue generating assets so that uh, their project in Syria and in Lebanon pays for itself. So the Iranians are trying, for example, recently they're trying to horn in on the Syrian telecommunications sector so that they can get uh, part of those revenues. They've Under Qasem Soleimani, they always were trying to get a share of a port, a share of a mine, a share of uh, uh, you know, an oil field, a gas field, a refinery, a factory. They were, they were constantly looking to trade their military assistance to Assad for some revenue generating asset that Assad would let them have, would give them a concession over some property. So I, there, there are a great many um, Iranian um, military figures, Quds Force type figures who, have, who own property in Syria now and, or have married into Syrian families and so on. They've, so they've had a lot of that signed over to them and they're constantly seeking more. That's the, those are core. They, they also want to, they're doing their usual thing where they, they try to piggyback on a, a local Shia community. So the Syrian Shia community, um, the Iranians have invested in trying to expand that community and expand its influence, expand its, its, its presence. Um, and that is something that has, that has caused sectarian tensions inside Syria as well. So th- those are, they have that big objective and then a, a couple of other things that they do along the way. Okay, so it's a complicated uh, chessboard of uh, various players, Syria, Russia, Iran. And what about the players on the other side, uh, Turkey, the United States? And I don't know if the Europeans play much of a role here at all anymore. Well, they all play, all those players play a big role. Uh, the, the Turks have... Uh, a dual um, policy in in Syria against two perceived threats. The first one is against the PKK, and the second one is against the Assad regime and its allies, whom they consider a, a threat. The, but for the Turks, the the PKK threat usually outranks their concern over the Assad regime, the Iranian regime, and Hezbollah, in particular. Um, and that that has that puts them at odds with the United States and the Europeans from time to time, and in in ways that can really blow up into confrontations, as happened a couple of times during the Trump administration. It's very difficult to get the Turks to have a comprehensive approach, uh, some kind of approach that will deal with all of the dangers that they perceive coming from Syria, and in addition. The, the Turks are saddled with three and a half million refugees. It's a huge issue for Turkey. It's, it's not affordable for them. Uh, so there, there's the constant pressure that the Erdogan government feels from uh, inside Turkey to try to uh, create places in Syria where refugees can return to. Um, the, the trick is that the refugees who are in Turkey are not from the areas that the Turks would designate for them, such as in uh, Kurdish majority areas in northeast Syria. So the, the Turks are, I think, caught between the things that they would do to 
uh, in their own way, address the PKK threat that they perceive undermines their cooperation with the United States and others who could work with them on the danger of Iranian expansion, Hezbollah expansion, and Assad regime provocations, and the refugee problem that Assad and the Iranians and Hezbollah created. Uh, so it's, uh, it's, it's very difficult with Turkey. The, the Europeans, uh, the Europeans, uh, the refugee issue is a huge one. The, the Assad regime's, uh, the impunity of the Assad regime's atrocities and the, uh, the campaign that has verged on genocide of Sunni Arabs in particular, these are things that uh, the Europeans still find unacceptable. Yet on, on, uh, but on, at the same time, the Europeans are driven by, uh, uh, by the danger of the resurgence of ISIS in Eastern Syria and Iraq, which then becomes a threat to Europe. As I mean, you just have to point to the Bataclan and other, other you know, iconic attacks in. Uh, in Europe, and you can see the danger that the that the Europeans perceive. And there are times when there are European voices who uh, want to uh, sort of demote the concerns about Assad and the refugees and and genocide in favor of focus just on ISIS and to try to detach the terrorist threat in Syria from the Assad problem or the problem that Assad creates, the problem set that Assad creates, which is not, it's not doable, but, the, but this is, this is a, this is a bit of a trend uh, in Europe that works sometimes to Assad's favor. And then lastly, you have the United States and the United States right now does not have a comprehensive policy on Syria. I mean, we, we tried to um, employ one during the Trump administration. I think we did for about a year, year and a half. That was difficult to do to get interagency consensus um, for a comprehensive approach in Syria. But I think that's, uh, that, that has not been taken up by the new administration, at least not, not to this date. It was we, the way over time, and it, and it took about a year and a half inside the Trump administration, um, the question was, well, what do we focus on in Syria? Do we focus on do we focus on the terrorist threat? Do we focus on the Iranian threat? Do we focus on just the uh, the the ills that are generated by the underlying political conflict between the regime and its opposition, or based on the nature of the regime, which is a horribly oppressive genocidal regime? And by the time we got to the summer of 2018, the leaders inside the Trump administration has said, you know what, we got to handle all of them because they're all interconnected. You can't just isolate one and think that you can just do them in sequence. Well, we'll handle the first one, we'll handle one, and then we'll do the others in sequence after that. And, uh, and so that we, we were, the Trump administration was sort of compelled to take a comprehensive approach to handle, try to handle all those problems at once, or, or at least be cognizant of all those problems at once and the way the ways in which they related to one another. And but before that, 
the tendency was just to focus on the campaign against Daesh and to say, okay, yes, the Iranians are doing something along with Hezbollah. Yes, Assad is doing his genocide and creating refugees and and he's a real crisis for international legitimacy. But those things are to be handled after handling the terrorism problem all the way to its end. And in fact, in the meantime, we might need to, there was, there were those in Washington and elsewhere who said, you know, we might need to go easy on Assad. We might need to go easy on the Iranians, might need to go easy on Hezbollah while we're handling the ISIS problem, because maybe they'll do something and the Russians as well. And maybe they'll hand, do something to help handle the ISIS problem as well. And I think that that is where the Biden administration is sort of um, the pendulum is swinging back uh, to, to that approach. It won't work. Uh, it, it didn't work before. And, and it's, it's not going to be possible to disaggregate those problems because they're, they, they fuel each other. But this is sort of where American policy implicitly is going. It's not declared, but I think that's, I think you'll see that. Uh, that kind of approach probably will be declared at some point, and then it will promptly begin to fail. The, the implication of such an approach would be to um, move the crimes of the Assad regime out of the center of attention. Uh, and this brings me back to your, um, to, to your tweet where you said there was um, too much international silence uh, about uh, what's going on in Syria, what's going on in Dara. Um, how come there's too much silence about this? It sounds like a terrible crime. Yeah, you can. So the the mode that you, the mode you see the Western powers getting into with the U.S. leading is to, for everything other than ISIS and Al-Qaeda, treating symptoms rather than the cause. So, for example, when the Biden administration came in, I think it became clear that they were going to have two, they were going to focus on two areas, both of which were symptoms of the broader Syrian conflict. One was uh, the counterterrorism campaign in eastern Syria, which wouldn't happen uh, if the Syrian uh, government were a different kind of government and if the Syrian government didn't continue to do what it has done in the last 10 years. And also the Syrian government had not let uh, a large number of those terrorists out of jail. And before they were in jail, the Syrian government hadn't sponsored a large number of those terrorists to attack Iraq uh, from 2003 onward. But the Biden administration um, chose to focus on that symptom of the broader problem and to focus on another symptom of the broader problem, which is the delivery of humanitarian assistance across the Turkish border into Northern Syria, into the areas that are besieged by um, Assad. And it, it, it looks like in order to get Russian acquiescence to the renewal of the UN mandate to deliver aid, across the Turkey-Syria border, um, the United States government had decided to go slow and to pull, or to, to, to go easier and pull punches 
on the Assad regime and the Russians in the meantime, especially economic sanctions pressure that had gotten quite intense under the Caesar Act by the end of 2020. That was really toned down. And it and it looks to those of us who are on the outside now, it looks like a quid pro quo that if the Russians will go along with help it, with letting the UN uh, deal with one of the symptoms of the conflict, then the United States will relieve some of the pressure that was meant to address the cause of the conflict and to compel the Russians and Assad into a political settlement at which the political settlement and the political process is called for in uh, UN Security Council Resolution 2254, which is the guiding document for that conflict. Okay, thank you. That's um, disheartening, but clear. Um, uh, Joel, let me ask one final question on a somewhat different topic. Um, there's, there's news from Lebanon uh, and its uh, political challenges. Would you like to comment on that, please? Sure. In uh, Lebanon uh, today, uh, a new government under Prime Minister Najib Mikati uh, was announced. Um, I think there was there's there's a lot of hope in the international community uh, at the among diplomats that maybe the formation of a government can lead to um, it, it'll that it'll be a Lebanese cabinet that that can help institute some emergency measures to try to deal with uh, the absolute collapse of the economy of the state of the security situation of, of Lebanese society. And I think those hopes will be dashed pretty quickly. Um, it's the, the cabinet that was formed is it's kind of a, just a, um, a slightly revised version of the same cabinet uh, that the Lebanese have had for the last several iterations. Um, not many new forces uh, and, and not getting at the fundamental problem in Lebanon, which is Hezbollah's domination of the government, uh, that Hezbollah essentially has a veto uh, outside of the political system uh, over anything that the government would want to do that that would actually address the situation. So I I don't it it's it, there 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 will be some hopes raised and and I don't think that there's any chance that uh, the situation is actually going to change. Well, Lebanon is another story. We've written about it at the caravan, and uh, we'll continue to watch it as we will Syria. Syria is a tragic story, a humanitarian disaster and a scandal. Um, in places like Dara, it's also a story of some heroism. Uh, let's hope the country someday can see freedom, safety, and peace. Thanks for the conversation, Joel. Uh, thank you also to our listeners. You can follow Hoover's Working Group on the Middle East at www.hoover.org caravan. The Hoover Institution is on Twitter at HooverInst, that's Hoover, I-N-S-T. And I'm Russell Berman on Twitter at Russell Berman SF. Please return to listen to our future discussions of the Caravan podcast later this month with my Caravan partner, Cole Bunzel. I hope you'll be joining us. Goodbye. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.